Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope we have in Christ. Uh, Lord, Lord, we hear the word hope every day, all over the place, and yet the people who speak that word have no clue what it means at times. But God, here we sit. Um, honestly, we, we sit here oftentimes unimpressed with the hope we have. God, I pray that we be reminded time and time again of what it is that Christ accomplished for us. The fact that though we were so far from him and completely helpless to do anything about it, that Jesus showed up. Father, I thank you. May we understand what hope is and may we celebrate it well today. For it's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 1. Man, it is definitely feeling Christmassy now. I don't know about you guys. It's like, it is Christmassy. Uh, Christmas is good. Christmas is an opportunity for us to celebrate a number of different things. Obviously, tried to make it the point ahead of time, but we'll make it the point week over and week over and week over and all the time and point it out as many times as we can that, that the main thing we celebrate at Christmas is Jesus. And so let's not, let's not miss that, okay? But there are some other things, just culturally speaking, that we get to celebrate during Christmas. We get to celebrate for myself my own traditions. I mean, everybody's got a little bit different tradition when it comes to Christmas, right? One of my uh, lifelong traditions has been, and this year it is going to be challenged, I would even say ruined, but that's okay, because I do my Christmas shopping on Christmas Eve day. Amen. See, there we go. That's right. It's the way that holy men of God do their Christmas shopping. <laughs> Jay, right? All right, brother. So, however, that's, that, I'm in trouble this week because Christmas Eve's on a Sunday, so I'm in, I'm in trouble. That's probably not going to work real well. I got, I got to work. So. Um, so we got some traditions that happen that way. We got some other traditions uh, in my home. And so um, what we'll do is after whatever service we're having that evening, we'll, we'll get back to the house and we'll get everybody settled down and ready for bed. And we'll light some candles because it's a candlelight thing in our home. And we get out the Christmas story and I read the Christmas story and the kids listen attentively without messing around every year. That's our tradition. Um, it's changed a little over the years as the kids have gotten a little older, but when they were little, we used to have a, a little nativity set that were those little people, you know, those little people plastic things, and, and they would act it out. Um, so it was pretty cool to have the nativity set, and you have the angels, and then you have Jesus on the top of the, or sorry, the angels on top of the barn, and Jesus in the manger, and then the donkeys would show up. And then, over time, as the kids got older, what ended up happening is that became the um, target practice. Um, and so... Camels and angels were shooting off of barns during Christmas season with BB guns and different things. So that was enjoyable, but that's a tradition. One of my traditions, one of our tra traditions, is we eat a shrimp cocktail that evening. Love me some shrimp cocktail. I have one kid who hates shrimp but loves the sauce. And so she'll take a shrimp, dip it, and just and double dip. So don't come to our house Christmas Eve. Um, another Christmas tradition of mine is I sit and watch in amazement as my wife stuffs Christmas stockings. It is unbelievable how much stuff she can fit inside of a Christmas stocking. It helps me understand her choice of purses so it all fits together. <laughs> so we all have some, some different Christmas traditions. Some of us get to rest with our immediate family. We get to sit and just enjoy the glow of, of our kids. Um... For many of us, we have a Christmas tradition where we get together with extended family and we get to endure the obnoxious extended family among us. Okay, all of you have at least one. 
And if you don't, I've got really bad news for you. You're the one. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> but when it comes to extended family, I mean, you got to understand, we all have some level of dysfunction in our families, don't we? Uh, so, so one of the most stark pictures that shocked me when I heard about it, there was a story, it used to, um, one of the, the versions of the uh, show is called Who Do You Think You Are? It's a, a story that does genealogies. There's another one that PBS does that's called, I gotta get it right, Finding Your Roots. It's the same idea. What they would do is they would do the genealogical study of, of a famous person to see who was in their history. And in 2015, this story broke and it got ugly. Because there's this fellow, I don't know if you've heard of him, his name is Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck was on this show and he was doing the research and they were digging in and they're like, oh, we have found some very interesting things. You have a, a, a revolutionary war veteran in your, in your genealogy. And he was astonished by that. I mean, that just like overwhelmed him. That's really cool. Um, you, you also have an, an occult enthusiast. He was like, okay, well, cool, I guess. And that was kind of the show. There were some other people involved, obviously, or it's not have been a really short show. Um, but the news broke that actually Ben Affleck had uh, used his influence in any way, shape, or form he could because during the uncovering of his genealogical roots, they found that his great-great-grandfather had owned 25 slaves down in Georgia. And he wanted no part of that, and he wanted no one to know. And so he used his influence on the producers of the show to have them remove that section from the show, and they actually did. They didn't include it in the show until um, news broke because you know how things, no secret's ever a secret. I don't know if you've not learned that yet. Quickly learn that, okay? So he thought he was keeping a secret, and it didn't happen, and it got out. And so in um, April of 2015, um, Ben Affleck posted this on his Facebook page because we're friends, <laughs> Sorry, I'm just kidding. I found it online yesterday when I was researching it, sorry. <laughs> just realized how crazy that sounded. Yeah, me and Ben were like that, man. So anyway, um, he said this, I felt embarrassed. The very thought that I had a slave owner in my history left a bad taste in my mouth. I didn't want any television show about my family to include a guy who owned slaves. He was okay with the occult guy. I mean, the idea for Ben Affleck that, that he had someone who enslaved in his genealogy, in his history, in his family history, embarrassed him and left a terrible taste in his mouth. I mean, after all, how could a Batman, albeit a very terrible Batman, how could a Batman have a checkered history like that? I mean, I, I get it. I do get it. I, I completely get it. But what I think he needs to understand and that he forgot is that even if he leaves them out of the show, they're still his family right? There's just no, you can't avoid that. We get to Matthew chapter 1 today, and we're going to read through the very genealogy of Jesus Christ, and what you're going to find is that there are people in the genealogy of Jesus Christ that Ben Affleck would have just absolutely gone into hiding had he found out they were in his family. It would have astonished him, astounded him, terrified him, and humiliated him. And yet, within the very word of God, it's recorded for us to take note that, yes, these are the ancestors of Christ. There's a reason for that, and we'll get to that towards the end here. That's usually a good plan to get to the end at the end. Um, yeah, so I'm going to read through uh, Matthew chapter 1. We're going to work through verses 1 through 17. Um, when I read, I'll, I'll kind of point out some of the things that we need to, to point out. Just, just by way of a little bit of um, 
Bible study stuff. So Matthew records genealogy of Jesus, as does Luke. They're, they're different in their genealogical structure, and actually they're different in their intent. Uh, Luke, remember, Luke was a physician, <laughs> easy for me to say, a physician. He was a medical doctor. So he was, he was very much um, about the specificity, the professionalism. He would go bam, 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 and just kind of lay, lay it all out. Matthew was really trying to prove a point. What Matthew is doing is saying, I'm going to go from, the, from Abraham and I'm going to bring it all the way to Jesus the Christ and I'm going to point out that he is a son of Abraham and he is a son of David. And he's the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one. That's his intent. And so what he does is he actually tries to use a memory trick and he says, okay, there's going to be 14, 14, and 14. There's 14 names here, 14 names here, 14 names there. Because in, in, in ancient Israel, your genealogy was of vital importance. You needed to commit it to memory because not only was it important to know whose stock you came from, but it was important to know if you were in the, the tribe of Levi, you, you would be qualified to be a priest. Or, or honestly, for the average uh, Israelite at the time, you needed to know what your family line was so you knew what your rightful inheritance was. And, and so as, as Matthew works through this, he says, what I want you to know is here's the, here's the names I want you to connect with so that you understand that Jesus is the son of Abraham, he is the son of David, and he is the promised anointed Messiah. So Matthew chapter 1, it says this, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So he makes it clear. Here we go. We're going to talk about Jesus Christ. Remember, Christ is not his last name. It's a title. It means anointed one. It means Messiah. Okay, so Jesus the Messiah the son of Abraham, the son of David. And he begins his genealogy right out of the gate with Abraham. And we're not even going to make it past the first name. Because Abraham had somewhat of a checkered history, didn't he? I mean, I mean think, 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 about, think about wonderful Father Abraham. The, the, the one whom the, the genealogy begins with. I mean, you, it doesn't take very long to get to the place where Abraham and his wife Sarah are traveling and Abraham freaks out that the king is going to kill him. And so what he does is, Sarah, tell him you're my sister. That way he leaves me alone. That's quite manly. But he doesn't do it just once. He does it again with Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. Tell him you're my sister so that way I remain protected. And actually, as you read Genesis chapter 20, you get to the, uh, like, the middle point of that chapter. What you find is there's a verse, verse 12, 13, 14, somewhere in the middle there. It talks about how Abraham did this repeatedly. This wasn't just a, a two-time event. This was Abraham's MO. This was how he protected himself. Lie, tell, her, tell him you're my sister. And then, then, then you skip to the other part of Abraham's life where God appeared to Abraham and Sarah and promised a son, right? But God, God obviously must have forgotten them, and so God was taking way too long to fulfill his promise to give Abraham a son, a child, a, a, an heir. And so what does Abraham do? He takes matters into his own hands. He sleeps with the maidservant of his wife Sarah. Her name is Hagar, and he has another, a son through Hagar named Ishmael. And to this day, we're seeing the consequences of that foolish, sinful choice. Because Isaac, the rightful heir of Abraham with Abraham and Sarah, is, is, is actually a co-father of the Israelite people. Ishmael, the illegitimate child of Abraham with Hagar, is the father of the Arab nations. Constantly at conflict, even today. So Matthew says, Let, let's talk about the line of Jesus the Messiah. He comes from Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. 
Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. So, so when you get to Jacob, I mean, we could spend a lot of time on Jacob as well. Jacob was the one who, who, who liked to stay in while his brother Esau liked to go hunting. Daddy Isaac seemed to identify with the hunter where, where his, his mom kind of related more to Jacob. And so, so Jacob was inside and Esau had been out and he runs in and Esau is famished and he is hungry and Jacob had just made some red stew. And Esau comes in and says, I'm starving to death. Please let me have some of your stew. And Jacob, being the deceiver that he is, says, wait, but hold on. You can have some stew if you give me the birthright, if you give me your place in the inheritance. And Esau, I don't know what he was thinking. It must have been good stew. Absolutely. You can take daddy's inheritance. You just give me some of the stew. Deal done. And so he Exchanged, Esau exchanged his birthright with Jacob for a cup of pottage. Porridge, not pottage. What's pottage? I don't think I want to know what pottage is. <laughs> I, don't know. Um, I was all worried about the names and I messed up porridge. Go figure. So, <laughs> so Jacob, uh, uh, Jacob then, as Isaac, his, his, his dad, is dying, Isaac wants to give the blessing to Esau, and so Esau goes out to get deer, and, and you know the story, Jacob the deceiver covers himself because Esau was a hairy man, and you wonder how hairy he was, because Jacob went and got the skin of a deer and put it on his arm, and his dad's like, oh, Esau, <laughs> right? That's kind of crazy. So, so, but Jacob would put that on, and he came in, he smelled like the field, and, 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 and Isaac was confused, who is this that I'm talking to? I, and he says, it's, 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 it's Esau, honest dad. Isaac passes his blessing on Jacob, Jacob the deceiver, Jacob's son, Judah. It's very interesting. It mentions Judah and his brothers. I mean, we won't even go into the story that we're all familiar with, with Joseph and the coat of many colors and all those brothers. That's Judah and his brothers. Judah and his brothers, the ones who, who sell their baby brother into slavery and tell their daddy that he's dead. I mean, Christmases get a little rugged in my home, but not like that, Right? But then it continues, it's Judah who fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. We, we got to take a minute there. For two reasons. First of all, a woman has been entered into the list of genealogy, into the line of Christ. That's unthinkable. And yet, God says, let me highlight something for you. Let's talk about Tamar, who through Judah's line had Perez What's that story? So the story is this. Tamar married Judah's oldest son named Ur. Ur and, and Tamar were married. No children. Ur had disobeyed God, and so God put Ur to death. So now Tamar is a widow. Now, rightfully following the Leverite law of the time, Judah gives his next son, Onan, to marry Tamar so that she would have his children and continue the name of Ur. So, so it's this whole thing. So, so Tamar is married to kid number one. Kid number one dies. Kid number two steps up, marries Tamar. Guess what happens to kid number two? He dies. Now Tamar's a widow again, and Judah's got a baby boy at home, and he's like, it's not going so well when these guys marry you, Tamar. I'll tell you what, he's too young now. You go home to your parents and wait for the little one to grow up, and then I will give him to you to be married to. She goes home, little man grows up, and Tamar's like, hey, wait a minute. He hasn't given me a son. And she's absolutely right. And so she finds out that Judah is going to town. And so she takes off the clothing of a widow and instead puts on the clothing of a prostitute. 
She sits at the city gate waiting for Judah to enter. Judah walks by and sees her, and he approaches her and says, So, how much for the evening? And she says, A goat. And he says, Mmm, I don't have a goat on me. And she says, Okay, well, in the meantime, give me your ring, give me your staff. Let me, let me have those things in, your, in your, your, your garment, your outer cloak. You give me those things, and that'll be kind of like a collateral until you can pay me the goat. And he obliges, and he gives her his signet ring, gives her his staff, gives her his cloak. And he commits an adulterous act with a prostitute who actually happens to be his daughter-in-law. He's just not aware. He goes home. He gets his servant. He says, here, here's a goat. Bring it to the, the, the temple prostitute. So the servant goes and says, okay, excuse me, sir, where's the temple prostitute? I need to, and the, the, the fellow at the gate says, there has never been a temple prostitute here. And he says, well, that's weird. So he goes back. And he's like, hey, Judah, there's no temple prostitute there. He's like, wow. Well, let's not tell anybody because they'll make fun of us. Um, and you know what? I tried to pay my debt. Didn't happen. Fast forward a month or two. People come to Judah and say, your daughter-in-law has been adulterous. She is pregnant. And Judah is infuriated. He says, let's put her to death. Bring her out. She comes out and they're getting ready to put her to death. And she says, hold on. Let me tell you who the man is who impregnated me. It's the man to whom these items belong. Here's a signet ring. A staff, a cloak. And Judas hangs his head in shame and makes the comment, she is more righteous than I am. The children that Tamar have are twins, and Perez is the line with which this uh, genealogy continues. And let's go through. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Hey! By Rahab. Ever heard of her? I mean, I know we got Boaz down. Big, bad, burly Boaz in the big, bad truck showing up at the field at just the right time to find Ruth, right? Rahab. Only one Rahab mentioned in Scripture, folks. She was the prostitute. And there she is mentioned in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Hmm. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. We know that story. We love that story. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered King David. Now, let me, let me, let's put ourselves into the mindset of one of the Israelites hearing this genealogy of Jesus the Christ. They've got to be hearing all these names, and every time a name, they're like, ooh, ah, ooh, ah. And there's like, King David, oh, Finally, King David, phew, tell the next sentence of verse six. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Doesn't even mention her by name, Bathsheba. You remember the story, the time the kings would go out to war, David stayed home. He was up on his rooftop looking out and he saw a woman bathing on her rooftop and he said, I want her. It doesn't matter how illicit it is. It doesn't matter how illegal it is. It doesn't matter how immoral it is. I want her. Bring her to me. They bring Bathsheba to him, and in their adulterous, fornicating relationship, she conceives. Word gets back to King David that Bathsheba is pregnant. That's okay. Got a plan. Send for her husband Uriah. Bring him home. Uriah comes home, and David sits down. Oh, it's so good to see you, Uriah. Uriah is probably like, this guy has never talked to me before. What is going on? 
How's the battle going? And Uriah explains, oh, I'm so, I'm so glad. Well, I'll tell you what, okay, you can go back to the field tomorrow. Why don't you go home this evening? It's been such a long time away. You go home to your wife. And Uriah sleeps on the porch. He refuses to go home. And David's plan is foiled. He was hoping that Uriah would long for Bathsheba and miss Bathsheba so much he would run home and fall into her arms. And then the pregnancy would be explained. The next morning, David says, why, why didn't you go home? And Uriah, the Hittite, says, while the men of our country, while the ark is in the wilderness, I will not sleep in a home. David says, you, you, oh, I admire you. Please stay for another day. And then they throw this huge feast and they get Uriah drunk so that he might forget that he had promised to not go home, and he might just accidentally end up back at home in his bed with his wife. But unfortunately for David, Uriah sleeps on the porch. David the next morning says, fine, but, but once you go back to battle, and he writes a letter to the commander, and he says, what I want you to do is put Uriah on the front lines, and when the battle gets hot, I want everybody else to pull back, but you leave Uriah up front so he's killed. And that happens. And you remember the story, how word comes back that Uriah has been killed. Bathsheba is mourning, as you would expect. And Nathan the prophet approaches David says, oh, mighty king, let me ask you some advice. Let's say there's a man who has hundreds and hundreds of sheep, all the sheep he could want. His next door neighbor has one little ewe. The man who has all the sheep grows jealous and decides he wants that ewe for himself, so he goes and he steals the ewe for himself. What should we do? And David is infuriated. He's like, we should kill that man. And Nathan said, yeah, you are that man. So when the Israelites would have heard this genealogy and heard the name of David and heard the name of Uriah's wife mentioned, they instantly would have thought of that story. And that begins the, the section of the kings, which we're going to work through very quickly, and I'm not going to tell every story. Um, however, there's some amazing stories with these fellows' names. So I'll just kind of mention a couple of them. So you go, David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Verse 7, Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam was Solomon's son, who when they asked him to lighten up a little bit, they asked him not to tax them as heavily. Um, Rehoboam's comment was, okay, you, you, you think my daddy was bad? Yeah, he, he came at you with whips. I'm coming at you with scorpions. Rehoboam, horrible son, horrible king, when the kingdom was actually split and divided with him. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa, great king. Asa was, was such a faithful king, he actually even removed his mom. It could be grandmom based on the translation, but he removed either his mom or grandmom from being queen mother because they, she had set up a, an idol. So that, that takes a little bravery, I would think. Hey, mom, you're fired. Um, probably not an easy thing to do. You go after Asa, my favorite king, Jehoshaphat. Not just because you can say jump in Jehoshaphat, which is nowhere in scripture, it's just cool to say. But Jehoshaphat's one of, the, one of those kings that, that as I read his story, particularly in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, what you see is Jehoshaphat coming against the Midianites and the Moabites, and it's about to go really ugly, and he doesn't see a way to escape. And then he offers up this prayer, and his prayer is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. It ends in verse 12, and it is the most beautiful prayer, I believe, in all of Scripture. And you get to the end, and, and, and Jehoshaphat's like, Lord, we don't know, we, we, we don't know how we're going to win. We know you're good, and you're God, and they're evil, and they're mean, and you want good for us, but we don't know what to do. And he ends his prayer by just saying that. He says, Lord, we have no idea what to do, but our eyes are on you. May that be our prayer each day. 
God's answer to that, God's description for him, God's revelation to him of what to do is this. All right, what I want you to do is get the band members and put them at the front line. So I want them to play music as you walk into the camps. Because that's a good strategy, right? That was Norman Schwarzkopf's strategy back in Desert Storm originally, right? Musicians, we need more musicians. But no, the musicians are going to play and they're going to sing this wonderful song about God's faithfulness and his mercy. And as they walked into camp, God had already taken care of the victory. Jehoshaphat, great king. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram, a terrible king. Joram was an awful king who ended up with this unspeakable disease, and when he died, it says no one cared. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah was a wonderful king for part of his life. See, see, see Uzziah was the guy who, who was doing amazing things, and it says in Scripture that he, he was marvelously helped. The picture of God's interaction with his king carrying him along, accomplishing great things through the king, accomplishing what it is that God wanted to accomplish through Uzziah because he was being marvelously helped by God. And then one day, somewhere in that helping process, Uzziah lost his way and thought he was accomplishing things because he was something. He went into the temple of God and began giving his own sacrifices, his own offerings, which is completely against the law. The priest confronted him and said, you can't be doing this, Uzziah. You need to leave. And Uzziah's like, I'm the king. And as soon as he utters those words in rebellion, it says leprosy. Bursts on his forehead. You're not supposed to be here, Uzziah. You don't know who I am. God does. Verse 9, Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz, Ahaz, Ahaz was a terrible king. Uh, he sacrificed his own sons uh, to, to, to a sun god, I think it was. And it says that when, when God began clamping down on him, when God began bringing um, the, the consequences to his sin, it says that he doubled down. He became more faithless. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a good king. He reformed a lot of things, but because of his pride in seeing what God had returned to him, he, he put all of his valuables, all of his riches, all of his wealth on display for the king of Babylon to see, which is not smart uh, because the, the king of Babylon came back and stole it. Verse 10, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Okay, you want to talk about an evil king? This dude became king when he was 12 years old. For 50 years, his legacy was that he spilled so much blood, it extended from one side of Jerusalem to the other side of Jerusalem. He was vicious. He was relentless. Um, he, it says that he, he did all the things that all the nations Israel had overthrown. He did all of those things himself. I mean, he was a terrible king, and God's judgment on him was to bring Babylon in. And Babylon came in, and they took him away with fish hooks, which we've talked about before, where they put the hook through the, the under part of his chin. So they carried King uh, Manasseh away with those hooks. They put him in, in cuffs. It says they were bronze cuffs, but they, they put him in shackles and cuffs, and they, they carried him away to Babylon. And along the way, Manasseh, who for 50 years, he was 12 when he became king, He's now 62 years old, and for that entire period of time was one of the most ruthless and evil and wicked kings of history. As he's being carried into Babylon, he has this moment where he recognizes what, what Scripture says. He recognizes this. The Lord is God. And he repents. 
God hears his repentance, God hears his cry, God hears his prayer, and for the last five years of his life, Manasseh is given an opportunity to redeem some of the evil that he had done. That, that, after Manasseh, you've got this guy named Ammon, or, or, or Amos, it's, it's called the same thing. Um, he, he was as bad as Manasseh was at the beginning, it's just he never repented. Ammon fathered Josiah. Josiah was an eight-year-old king. Oh, baby. Eight years old. He's now the ruler of the country. Terrifying. Uh, mac and cheese for everybody. Um, he's, he's this eight-year-old, and, and yet what's amazing about him is that he begins to restore things back in Israel in such a way that it brings honor and glory to God. As he's restoring the temple, they find the law. They begin to read the law in public for the first time in years. He brings back Passover again and the celebration of the Passover event. I mean, he is that kind of king. It's this amazing thing. And it says, Josiah, father Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Now, uh, for time's sake, and it's actually a a, a wonderful thing about the, the text, is you get to this point in the genealogy, and actually you start losing information about names because it's becoming closer to the time of Christ. We're getting that time period in between the Old Testament and the New Testament where very little is actually recorded about these fellows. And so it goes on like this. After the exile to Babylon, verse 12, Jeconiah fathered Shealtel. Shealtel fathered Zerubbabel, favorite name on the list. Verse 13, Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliad. Eliad fathered Eliezer. Eliezer fathered Methan. Methan fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. From the exile to Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. There's the, the memory trick that he's trying to get them to understand. He says, oh, so now we have walked through the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And every name has a story. Every name has brought memories, some good, most bad But what does this have to do with the very message of Christmas? And specifically, what does this have to do with the very message of hope? When you read this list, there is no pattern of righteousness to be found. When you read this list, you have adulterers, you have prostitutes, you have heroes, you have villains, you have deceivers, you have unfaithful, you have Gentiles, you have have Moabites. Man, Ben Affleck would have had a cow if this was his genealogy. But not Jesus. Because this points to the very hope that we have in Christ. See, the first lesson we can learn from this is we have hope because God isn't overwhelmed by impossible situations. When you read through this leading to the Messiah, leading to the very birth of Jesus Christ, you're you're, you're reminded time and time again that without exception, God is sovereign. You, You read these names and the stories come to mind. Abraham offering Isaac ready to lower the knife and yet God says stop and a ram is provided in the thicket. What in the world? What a coincidence. No, see, see, God isn't overwhelmed by impossible situations. You've got big bad Boaz, remember, showing up at just the right time at just the right field. You've got Jehoshaphat and the choir going in front of him. You've got kings being set up and kings being torn down. See, God is not overwhelmed by impossible situations. You've got the type of people that you're forced to work with every day at work. You've got the difficult situations with your children right now. You've got your current job situation. Got your financial statement. You just saw your bank statement. It's not good. You got poor health. Questions about what next week holds. 
You've got some of your greatest hurts that can't even be expressed. And all those things can seem like they're impossible to overcome. But here's hope. Hope isn't found that everything would be perfect, wonderful, bright and shiny, because God never promised that. Hope is that God promised he would show up. And even though, as you read through these names and the stories, it seemed like it might have gotten a little iffy at times. It's only iffy in our limited view. From God's perspective, his faithfulness never wavered. You want to know what hope is? Hope is this. Hope is the fact that today's tragedy and tomorrow's mystery are still under the watchful eye of a faithful and powerful God. That's hope. As we read this list, that should come rushing in on us. We have hope because because God isn't overwhelmed by impossible situations. We have hope because God is willing to associate with improbable people. Think about that. He doesn't just associate with humanity. He associates with the very dregs of humanity. He associates with murders and thieves and rapists and prostitutes and and politicians. He, he, He associates with liars and deceivers and idolaters. I mean, that's so that not one of us sitting here could claim that we're so bad that God has given up on us. If this genealogy teaches us anything, it's that the good news that was announced to the shepherds is for all people. Everybody's represented. You've got Jew and Gentile and male and female and rich like Solomon and poor like Ruth. You've got homeless like Abraham. You've got settled like David. The good news is that you can be reconciled with God. But, but, and it doesn't matter how broken you are. I'm going to be careful time. It doesn't matter how broken you are because God heals the broken. God knows their brokenness. See, what, what separates many of these is not their brokenness. It's how they responded to their brokenness. Think about it, Uzziah, who who thought he was something because he was being marvelously helped, entered into the temple, and because of his arrogance had leprosy and his whole entire legacy was, was ruined. But then you've got Manasseh, who was one of the worst kings ever for 50 years, being evil for 50 years, and yet when confronted with his sin, repented. Stop trying to hide your brokenness. Admit what God already knows. I mean, God knows that we're separated from him. And that that is the gospel, right? That that, that though we have been separated from God because of our sin, and we're helpless to do anything about it ourselves, God loved us and sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived for us, who died for us, who rose from the grave, defeating sin and death forever. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. See, the hope is this. Despite great obstacles and rebellious people, God showed up to offer a rescue. That's what hope is. And this morning, as a, as a body of Christ, this morning as a church family, we have the opportunity to, to look at the very picture of God showing up. I mean, we celebrated at Christmas, the baby in the manger, absolutely. But every month here at Uniontown Bible Church, we have the opportunity to, to celebrate the picture that Jesus left for us to be reminded of what it is that he accomplished for us. We celebrate the, the hope we have because Jesus came just as he promised. We, we celebrate the hope because, because he defeated the grave just like he promised. We celebrate the hope because he's coming again just as he promised, right? Matthew 26 tells us where he institutes, he begins the Lord's Supper. He says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples and he said to them, take, eat of it, this is my body. 
Then he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them. He said, drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I'll not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus showed up just as he promised. That's hope. Jesus defeated the grave just as he promised. That's hope. Jesus is coming again just as he promised. That's hope. Those are the reasons we have hope. Those are the reasons we celebrate Advent, to reflect on the fact that he came and that he's coming again. And so this morning, as we take the opportunity to observe the Lord's Supper together, to take communion together, be reminded of the hope you have in Jesus. Be reminded that that cracker is just a cracker, and yet it pictures the broken body of our Savior. That that juice is simply juice, and yet it pictures the shed blood of Jesus for your sins. So in a moment, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for our observance of the Lord's Supper, and then we're, we're, the, the, the band's going to come up. And after I pray, please dismiss yourself from your, your seats and, and come forward, or we've got some tables in the back as well, and, and go and, and, and get your elements for the uh, observance of communion and return to your seats. And in a few moments, we'll go ahead and, and we'll partake of the elements together. Hey, we've got hope, not just because we like Christmas songs either. We've got hope because we have a God who loved us and sent his son for us. Let's celebrate that. Father God, I thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, I say that every time I pray at the end of a message. And I, and I think sometimes, many times, most times, I'm not even paying attention to what I'm saying. But God, you are so very good that you have given us your son, Jesus Christ. You are so very good that you redeemed us and rescued our souls from hell. You are so very good you gave us your word so that we can know you. God, thank you for your goodness. Now, Lord, as we come to the table, as we receive the elements, as we look at the picture of your broken body and your shed blood, I ask, Lord, that you would remind us of what it is that you've accomplished for us on the cross. Remind us that we have crossed over from death to life in Jesus. And if there's one who is here this morning who is struggling and wrestling with the very soul, God, I ask that you would give them the ability to simply trust in Christ and in no other. For it's in Jesus' good and precious name I pray. Amen.